0: Our scripture this morning is taken from the book of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations you shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O teman, shall be dismayed, to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of their distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity, Indeed, you should not have gazed upon their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of their distress." For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But... On Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowlands shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. As far as Zarephath, the captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then the saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's." There are lots of voices in our world today. Every day, people are stepping up to the mic who want to speak into our lives. But is what they're saying true? Is it life-giving? Is it what we need to hear? It's time to cut out all the other noise and all the other voices because our God has something to say, something true, something life-giving, something we all need to hear. Our God is at the mic, so let's listen now to Him.
1: Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank You for this word that has just been read to us, your word, and we pray now as we read it and study it and think about it that you would change us by it. Help us, Father, to trust you, to follow you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, my uh, family and I have been in training for this cold weather that we're experiencing here uh, this morning. Uh, Because we spent the last week up in in North Carolina. Uh, It was our kind of one of our goals to take our kids to see some snow, and uh, by God's grace, we accomplished that. We were in like 10 inches of snow, um, a lot of snow, and uh, took our kids skiing for the very first time. Came back with only minor injuries, and uh, only nearly slipped off a mountain in our minivan one time. So, all in all, just a good week. It's good to be back to be with you today. And so if you have your Bibles today, and I hope that you do, would you turn with me to the book of Obadiah. Uh, Just to warn you, it is a little tough to find Obadiah. It is only one page long. Uh, It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, so this might be a place where it's good to use that table of contents in the front of your Bibles, but it's sandwiched there between the books of Amos and Jonah. Uh, This is uh, only our second week in this series, God at the Mic, and so if you're just joining us today, maybe visiting for the first time today, you haven't missed too much yet, Uh, altogether this is going to be a 12-week series as we spend one week in each of the 12 books of the Bible that are normally referred to as the Minor Prophets. And What we've been saying in this series is that in each of these prophetic books, our God is stepping up to the microphone. Uh, That he has a message to deliver. Now granted, the the messages that he delivers in these books were given to particular groups of people who lived at, at particular times in history. But they are in our Bibles because God has a message in these books for us today as well. And of course we know that's true that all of scripture is breathed out by God that all of scripture is profitable for us but you know perhaps out of all 12 of the minor prophets the one that we're studying today this book of Obadiah may be the one that that at least at first blush it, it might be kind of difficult for us to see what relevance what meaning does this have for our lives. Again, it's a very short book. There's not much there to begin with, just a page in our Bibles, and then just about every word in this book is directed at a particular group of people known as the Edomites. And so you might read through this one-page book, and you might think, well, I'm not an Edomite. (laughs) At least I don't think that I am, and so I'm not sure what this book really has to say to me. But I hope, pray, by the time that we're done today, we'll see Uh, that the Lord has a lot that he wants to say to us through uh, this little book. It would be helpful for us, I think, to know a little bit of the background of this book before we dive in. The book is named for its author, the prophet Obadiah, uh, but that was a very common name back then. We don't know anything else about Obadiah other than uh, that he was the author of this book. Uh, There is a debate about when this book was written. Uh, Several different views on that. The traditional view, which... Uh, I believe is most likely to be correct, is that this book was written shortly after 586 B.C. And 586 B.C. was a monumental date in biblical history, because that is the year that the Babylonians came and attacked Jerusalem and carried away, eventually, many of its inhabitants into captivity. As we're going to come to see, this message from God through Obadiah is given to the Edomites who, instead of helping and assisting Israel in their time of crisis, uh, instead basically joined in with those who were attacking them and literally cheered them on. Uh, probably the most important bit of background to know before we jump into this book is that what is going on in the book of Obadiah really goes all the way back to an ancient sibling rivalry. Now, I don't know how many of you grew up with brothers and sisters in your home and maybe had some sibling rivalries going on. Uh, My older brother, Chuck, who's a part of our church family, sings in our choir. He's nine years older uh, than I am. And uh, my sister Robin is seven years older than I am. And so a little bit of an age difference there. And, and between you know me and my brother, because he was nine years older, When it, if there was a sibling rivalry, I was going to lose it. Uh, when it came to anything physical, I mean, he was just so much older, bigger, stronger my whole time growing up. Uh, also, I knew that I was going to lose when it came to any kind of an academic sibling rivalry. And uh, I, I remember when I went to Palm Bay High School, I was in ninth grade, and I sat down in my chair in my chemistry class. The teacher there, uh, Mr. Peckage, had been there for many, many years and had a tradition of hanging up banners from the rafters of his classroom about any accomplishments that any of his prior students had done. Those were the best students in chemistry. They had won different awards. And, and, And again, my brother's nine years older. He had been out of this class for nine years. And I'm sitting there, and I counted in the rafters of that classroom 23 banners with my brother's name on them. And I said, well, this this sibling rivalry is over right now, and I have lost. But again, this book in the Bible, the book of Obadiah, goes back to a sibling rivalry between two brothers, Jacob and Esau. In fact, we find out in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, that this feud between these two twin brothers started when they were still in the womb. Look at what it says in Genesis 25. Now, Isaac pleaded With the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So they were wrestling with one another even in their mother's womb. And and when they were born, you might recall that Jacob was literally hanging on and grabbing on to the heel of his older brother Esau when he was born. Even though Esau was the firstborn, Jacob, who is the child of the promise, ends up kind of conning his brother Esau out of his birthright. And then, with the help of his mother, ends up conning him out of their father's blessing as well. And his brother Esau did not take too kindly to that. In fact, he wanted to kill his brother Jacob, and Jacob had to run away for his life. Now, many years later, Jacob and Esau did reconcile, but their ancestors carried on this feud between them, and they took it further and further. You see, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so the Israelites take their name from him. Esau, his name is also Edom, and the Edomites take their name from him. And so these two nations that we're reading about in Obadiah, the Israelites and the Edomites, directly trace their origins to these two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Like I said, the tension between these two nations increased more and more. Many years later, when Under Moses, God rescued the children of Israel from Egypt, and they wanted to get to the promised land, the shortest route that they could. And so they asked their brother, Esau, the Edomites, can we pass through your territory? And the Edomites said, no way. And not only can you not pass through here, but if you try to pass through here, we're going to come out with our army and we're going to attack you. That didn't do a whole lot to kind of build up the brotherly love between these two brothers. And by the time we get to Obadiah, any vestige of brotherly love is entirely gone. Here's the thing that I want us to think about as we study this book. In many ways, these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, and these two nations, the Israelites and the Edomites, they really represent two ways... That we can live our lives even today. The descendants of Jacob were the people of God. They were the ones who received the promises. They were the ones who were waiting for the Messiah to come. But the Edomites, they were just like their forefather Esau. They were essentially godless. Godless. In fact, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it warns us not to be like Esau. And it refers to Esau as a profane or a godless person who basically had no room in his thinking for God at all, who cared so little for God, who cared so little for his place in the plan of God that as the author of Hebrews says, he was willing to sell his birthright for one little measly bite of food. Again, if you think about it, those two groups of people are still alive and well today the godly and the godless. Now, we are all sinners, of course. We know that. The godly are those who have been convicted by their sin of the Holy Spirit, who have humbled themselves enough to know that they need a Savior who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who died to save us, and then by God's grace are seeking to live their lives in a way that honors the one who saved them. But the godless, like Esau long ago, still have little room for God in their thinking. They are those who essentially shake their fist at heaven and say to God, I do not need you and I do not need anyone else. I will live my life on my terms. I will live my life the way that I please. There are the godly and the godless. And in this short little book, God has a message for both groups of people. He has something he wants to say to the godless and something he wants to say to the godly. He has a message for the Israelites and a message for the Edomites. And that means that he has a message for every single one of us, no matter who we are. And so here's the plan for today. As we study this little book of Obadiah, first I want us to see three messages that God has for the Edomites, for the descendants of Esau, for the godless in every age, including in our own. And then more quickly, I want us to look at three messages God has for his people, for the descendants of Jacob. And then at the very end, I want us to think about one choice that we all will need to make. First, let's look at the three messages God has for Esau, for the ungodly Edomites. And here's the first message which God says to them. He said to them, you're high and mighty now, but I will bring you down. The message that God had for Edom begins in verse 2, but really even before that, at the end of verse 1, there's this little parenthetical comment that's inserted. You see it there. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, "'Arise, and let us rise up against her.'" for battle. What's really striking about that is that God is about to announce the impending doom, the judgment that is going to come upon the Edomites. But what that verse says is that even simultaneously as he's announcing that judgment, he's essentially out on a recruiting trip, and he's already recruiting nations to rise up and to be the instruments that he's going to use as the instruments of his justice upon the Edomites. Then in verse 2, God's message to them begins. Notice he speaks to them directly, and he says, I will make you small, and you will be greatly despised. Now, that's the opposite of how they viewed themselves. They didn't view themselves as small. They viewed themselves as large, as important, as worthy to be revered. And, of course, God says that's really where your problem begins, the way you view yourself. Look at verse 3. God said to them, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? God didn't waste any time before he put his finger on the root of the problem going on among the Edomites. It was the pride of their hearts. Now, what made the Edomites so proud? Well, verse 3 kind of alludes to that. In many ways, their pride came from Where they lived. They lived south of the Dead Sea along a major trade route, the King's Highway. They became very wealthy from all the trade that happened along that route. They also lived in a rugged mountainous region where the heights of the peaks reached as high as a mile high. And they built their defenses and their homes way up in the, in the craggy rocks and the clefts of the rock and they thought nobody's going to be able to get us up here. We're invincible. Really, where they lived is the same place that we know today as Petra. You can find Petra in the modern day country of Jordan. Here is one of the more famous pictures and images from ancient Petra. Now, this particular building was constructed by the group that lived at Petra right after the Edomites. The Nabataeans built this uh, fortress, but this is the same location where the Edomites lived. And they felt very secure. They knew if any enemies were going to try to attack us, they have to get to us through these little narrow uh, chasms and and try to pass through these cliffs. It's going to be easy to defend ourselves against their attacks. And so again, they thought they were invincible. In fact, in verse 3, God says, I know what you're thinking in your heart. What you're thinking in your heart is, who will bring me down to the ground? And the answer that they had in their heart was nobody. Right? Nobody's going to bring me down because nobody can bring me down. You know, the Edomites were an ancient people, but they were not the last people on the earth to believe that they were invincible. They were not the last nation to live on this planet that thought they were so strong and mighty that nobody could ever take them down. And of course, there's an immediate application for us Who live in the lone superpower on earth at this time, the United States of America? It would be very easy for us to think the same way that the ancient Edomites thought that we are invincible because of our military prowess and our might, because of our technological superiority. We can think that nobody will ever take us down, but if I had a word to speak to those who are in charge of our nation, it would be to remind them of what the Bible says, that we are not to trust in horses, we are not to trust in chariots, we are not to trust in our stealth bombers and in our nuclear weapons, but we are to trust in the name of the Lord our God. But even more than thinking about the application to our nation as a whole, I want us to think about how this truth applies to each of us on the individual level. Because our heart's basic default mode, especially I believe when we're young, is to think that we're invincible. Nothing can hurt us, nothing can take us down. You know, when I went skiing this week, it was the first time I've skied in like 15 years. And you know, when you're a teenager and you're in your 20s and you're skiing, you feel like I can fall and it's going to be no problem. But something happens when you get north of 40 years old. And I'm watching these children, I'm watching them tumbling down the, 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 the ski slope, and I'm thinking to myself, if I fell like that child just fell, it would be the last thing that I ever did on this planet. I would be gone. Life has a way of teaching us. Even our bodies have a way of teaching us as we age that we're not as invincible as we think but we all wrestle with that prideful spirit that makes us think nothing is ever going to touch us you know throughout the bible though we read that god hates pride pride is at the root of every sin even the very first sin in the garden of eden we read this warning in the book of proverbs proverbs 16:18 pride goes before destruction And a haughty spirit before a fall. But some of us are so proud that we read that warning and we still think it doesn't apply to us. We still think we'll never fall. And that's because just like what it says here about the Edomites, the pride of our heart has deceived us. It has tricked us, it has deceived us into thinking that we're invincible, into thinking on the spiritual level that we'll never be held accountable for any of the things that we do. That no day of judgment will ever come. But the Bible says that's not the case. That's why in verse 4 when they asked that rhetorical question, who will bring me down, God decided he would answer that rhetorical question and he said, I will. I will bring you down from I don't know how many of you played that, that game when you were a kid called King of the Mountain. How many of y'all ever, ever played that game? King of the Mountain is a very easy game. All you need is like a little hill or a pile of dirt to play it. I know that's why every child in here that's like under the age of 12 has been so tempted by that massive pile of dirt that is right outside on our construction site, right? But, but don't do it. That's definitely going to end in an injury right there. But, but it's a very simple game, right? All you're trying to do is get to the top of the mountain. And you, if you have to scratch and claw and kick and bite and elbow, whatever you have to do to get people out of your way, to get up to the top of that mountain, and then you stand up. If you make it to the top of the mountain, you stand up at the top of the mountain and you say what? You say, I'm the king of the mountain. And you keep on shouting that until one of your friends grabs your ankles and pulls you down. (laughs) Because they want to take your throne. And I know most of us in this room are several years removed from the last time we played king of the mountain. But there are many people in this world like the Edomites. Perhaps many in this room who in our hearts still believe we're the king of the mountain. That life is about us. Life is about getting to the top. It's about staying there. We're the king. But church, there is only one king. He is the king of every mountain. He's the king of every hill. He's the king of every blade of grass. And through the pen of Obadiah, God is saying to every proud person and every proud nation, That one day, sooner or later, he will bring every proud thing down to the ground. You may be high and mighty now, God says, but I will bring you down. And again, friend, that can happen sooner or later. My prayer is that that would happen sooner, that even today, by God's grace, you would be willing to come down. You would be willing to humble yourself and admit that you need a Savior and receive his grace and his forgiveness into your life. It can happen sooner or it can also happen later. On that day of judgment when we all will meet the one who has created us. second message that God has for the ancient Edomites, for the godless in every generation, including our own, he says this, you should not have done what you did. We'll come back to verses 5 through 9 in a moment, but if you look at verses 10 through 14, essentially God lays out the charges against the Edomites for what they did against the people of God, the Israelites. Verse 10 is kind of a summary statement where he speaks about the violence that you committed against your brother. Everything that he's about to say falls into that category. But Then in verses 11 through 14, he lists four specific charges against them. In verse 11, he talks about how on the day that the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, you stood on the other side. What he means by that is that you did precisely nothing. You just stood on the other side and you watched it instead of coming to their aid, instead of helping. The second charge in verse 12 goes even further Obadiah says this, But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother and the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of their distress. When it says you should not have gazed, it really means you should not have Gloated. That's what they did. They, they gloated over what was happening to the Israelites. Not only did they not do anything to stop it, they essentially grabbed a big uh, box of popcorn and sat down to watch the show. And they, they enjoyed it, and they celebrated, they rejoiced over what was happening to the Israelites. And then in verse 13, we find out they weren't entirely passive after all, that some of them actually went into the gates of Jerusalem with the enemy. They took some of the spoil for themselves, And then in verse 14, we read this. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered those up among those who remained in the day of their distress. So in the end, the Edomites actually did start working with the enemy. And when the Israelites were fleeing, when they were running away from Jerusalem to try to save their lives, they stood at the crossroads and instead of helping them or hiding them, they captured them and they handed them over. To the Babylonians. And the Lord says, after every one of these charges, He says, You should not have done that. And of course, because they did, judgment was now coming to them. You know, part of our pride problem is that we have a hard time admitting or recognizing just how sinful we really are. I think, again, our kind of default mode is just to kind of look around us and compare ourselves to other people. And to think, you know, I I might not be perfect, but I'm I'm not that bad of a person. And I'm a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as that person or that other person or that person I see on TV. And and yet that's not the way that God sees things at all. And if we think in our minds and our hearts about all of the things that we have done throughout our lives, all of the sinful things that we've spoken with our lips, we've thought in our minds, we've done with our hands, And we might think, well, once I've written all that down, I've gotten all the way to the end of my sins. But actually, I would say at that point, we're only about halfway there. Because there's this whole other category of sin, which are not the the wrong things that we have done. This other category of sin are all the right things that we should have done that we did not do. That's actually where Obadiah starts with his assessment of the Edomites. He says, on the day that the Babylonians invaded, you just stood on the other side. There was something you should have been doing, but you did not do it. And how often has that happened in our life where we've just stood on the other side? We haven't stood up for injustice when we've seen it. How many times have we failed to do what Jesus talked about in Matthew 25? To do unto the least of these, to feed the hungry, to clothe the stranger, to visit the sick, those imprisoned. So friends, when you think about all the wrong things that we have done, and then on top of that, you think about all the right things that we should have done, that we did not do, no, no, the charges against us are every bit as clear and every bit as overwhelming as the charges against the Edomites. We are all guilty as charged. And if we have not yet turned to Jesus for forgiveness, then we are not ready for the day of judgment which is fast approaching. And that is the third message that he has for the Edomites. The third message for them and for the godless in every age is this, as you have done, it will be done to you. The way Paul puts that in Galatians is God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he reaps. Back in verses 5 and 6, the Lord describes how complete their coming judgment was going to be. He basically says, you know, when a thief breaks into your house, he's going to take some stuff, but he's probably going to leave at least a few things lying there. He's not going to take it all. And when somebody is gathering grapes and they go through the vineyard, they're going to glean probably most of the grapes, but they're at least going to leave a few grapes lying around. But God says to the Edomites, that's not how it's going to be with you. He says, when I'm finished with you, there's not going to be a thing left. The judgment will be total. And then he says in verse 7, don't think that your friends are going to save you either. The men that you count on as allies, the men in your little confederacy, the nations that you lean on, the ones who even ate bread with you at your own table, don't think they're going to save you. In fact, some of those very people who ate bread at your own table are about to betray you and put the knife in your back. And then he says in the next verse, verse 8, he says, also don't think that your wisdom is going to save you. Edom was known for having wise sages that lived there, and yet none of these wise sages were able to pick up on what was about to happen to them. And then he says in verse 9, don't think that your might is going to save you either because all of your mighty men will be cut off on the day of slaughter. It's a picture of how total, how complete the judgment against them was going to be. And friends, we all need to know that a far greater day of judgment is coming for all of us the bible says it is appointed for man once to die and after that comes the judgment that every single one of us after we die will have an appointment to stand before god and just like obadiah says on that day it will not matter who our friends were it will not matter how wise or smart we think we were It won't matter how mighty or how strong we were considered to be. It will not matter how much money we had. It will not matter how many awards we won, how many accolades we have won. None of that will amount to a hill of beans on that day. All that will matter on that day is the condition of our hearts. And whether we have humbled ourselves enough to receive the Savior into our lives Down in verses 15 and 16, Obadiah speaks about this coming day of the Lord. And he says it's not just going to be a day of judgment for Edom. It's going to be a day of judgment for all the nations. And he describes it in verse 16 as being like being forced to drink a cup. And the cup represents the wrath and judgment of God against our sin. He describes it as being forced to drink that cup. And you want to stop drinking it, but you're not allowed. You have to keep on drinking it. Verse 15, look at what it says there in verse 15. He describes it this way. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Wow, God says, as we have done, it will be done to us. And so all of that sin that we just talked about, all the wrong things that we've done, all of the right things that we should have done that we did not do, all of that evil, he says the evil we have done will be returned upon our own head. That is not good news for any one of us in this room because we are all sinners. This is where we need to remember that all of the bad news in the Bible is meant to make us understand how good the good news really is. And the good news is that God's Son, Jesus Christ, has come. And that he has taken upon himself the judgment that you and I deserved. He was seated on high in heaven, but Philippians 2 said he was willing to come down. He was willing to humble himself for us. And he was willing to let all of the things that Obadiah said were going to come upon the Edomites, he was willing to let all of those things come upon himself. He was willing to be betrayed by someone who ate the bread at his very table. He was willing to be covered in shame as he bore our sin in his own body on the tree. He was willing to be cut off on the day of slaughter, even though we deserved to be. And he was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath. Remember, he talked about that in the garden the night before he went to the cross in the garden called Gethsemane. He prayed to the father and he said, father, if there's any other way, let this cup be taken from me. This is the cup he's talking about the cup of the wrath of God. But there was no other way. And so what did he do the next day as he hung upon that cross? He drank the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop. And he drank it for you and he drank it for me. And all of that evil that we have done, instead of it being returned upon our own head, the Bible says it was laid upon the head that was crowned with thorns. And he died in your place and he died in my place. The, the good news is when it, when it says in verse 21 that saviors will come to Mount Zion which is another name for the city of Jerusalem the good news is we know that the Savior has already come. But when it says in verse 17 on Mount Zion there will be deliverance we know that deliverance has already come. Because Jesus has come. And he died for us and he rose again so that by God's grace and through faith in Christ, we can become a part of the people of God. And so very quickly in these last couple of verses, there's a few messages God has for the people of God. First off, he says to us who have trusted in Christ, I will deliver you. Look again at verse 17, but on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. Now in Obadiah's day, what an encouraging word that would have been for them. Having just seen their capital city of Jerusalem ransacked, having been taken away into captivity to far off Babylon, to hear this word from the prophet that one day there would be a deliverance. I wonder, though, if somebody in this room today needs to hear that same word. I don't know what you're going through in your life, what trial or suffering you're going through right now, and you don't know how you can make it. God will sustain you. And friend, if you're in Christ, hear his word to you. One day there will be a deliverance for you. He will make all things new in you and around you. He will deliver you. Here's the second message he has for God's people. He says, I will defeat your enemies. In verse 18, we read this word The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Now, historically, that prophecy would begin to be fulfilled about a hundred years or so after these words were written. The Edomites were brought down from their lofty perch, and eventually they were replaced there by the Nabataeans. But some of the Edomites survived that onslaught. In fact, we see some of their descendants, even in the New Testament. King Herod traced his origins to the Edomites. Of course, tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. This war between these two brothers continued, even into the New Testament. But one day this prophecy will be finally and totally fulfilled, not just for the Edomites, but for everyone from every nation who rejects the Lord. God's enemies will be judged. While we should certainly long for and pray for the salvation of everyone, including even our own enemies, it is encouraging to read these words that one day when the trumpet sounds, All of the evil that exists in this world will be no more. Are you looking forward to that day? leads to the final message. The last line, the last phrase that God says to his people in this little book of Obadiah. Message number three, the kingdom will be mine. The very last phrase of verse 21, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, of course, we know in a very real sense the kingdom already belongs to the Lord. Jesus is king over all creation, even right now. But we also know that in this age, in God's providence, Satan has been permitted to wage war for now as the prince of the power of the air. But the day is coming, the Bible tells us, when Satan will be vanquished once and for all, when Jesus will come and he will set up his earthly kingdom and he will rule and he will reign in a present and visible way. This is how the book of Revelation puts it. It said, then the seventh angel said, Sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that day, church, is getting closer and closer every day. And so, what do we have to fear when we know how the story ends? That the King of Kings is coming, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Because we know that the king is coming, and because we know that one day we will all meet him face to face, we all have a choice to make. It's like I said at the beginning, these two groups of people represented by Jacob and Esau are still alive and well in the world today. There are still those like Jacob today who have trusted in God, who have humbled themselves, who have received God's grace, who have put their faith in the Savior Jesus who has come. But then there are others who are like Esau, who are living today the same way that Esau lived back then, those who have built their eagle's nest way up in the stars, and they think I am invincible. I am my own God. I don't need help from anybody. I will live life on my own terms the way that I please. G. Campbell Morgan said this in his own day. It's even more accurate today. Godlessness is more rampant today than ever before people living independently from God, living without the need for prayer, living without any spiritual vision or understanding of what is coming, but one day everyone will have to come face to face with reality. And so here's the choice that each of us has to make. Will I stand with Jacob or with Esau on that day? When that day comes, and you meet the Lord face to face, will you be standing with Jacob, with the people of God, saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, or will you be standing with godless Esau, dead in your sins, and about to receive the promised judgment of God? Friend, if up until today you have been standing with Esau, the good news is there is still time to change where you are standing. And I want to invite you today to do just that. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me as we sing together. And as we're singing this song, I want to invite you, friend, to come. If you've said, I've been standing with Esau up until this day, but I want to stand with Jacob. I want to be a part of the people of God. I want to receive forgiveness that only comes through Jesus. I'm ready to come down. I'm ready to humble myself and submit myself to the Lord. You come and receive that grace into your life right now. Speak that word to me or to any of the pastors that you see here at the front. We'd love to pray with you right now as you make that greatest decision you ever make in your life to receive the grace of Christ into your heart. You come as we sing together.